to have Lord teach us to pray. I said to myself, I need to be taught how to pray. Ever since I became a Seventh Avenue Christian, I began to learn the true meaning of prayer. Before that, my mother taught us how to pray, a Catholic home, over and over again. We were lined up according to age, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. And we prayed. We were very close together in age. And we prayed. You know what we prayed? The Lord's Prayer. As a Catholic family. And somehow I think that my mother somehow knew that we must learn how to pray. But we memorized the Lord's Prayer. And then I began to realize more and more after I became a Christian of what really prayer is all about. And today I chose to do something very different. Instead of telling you what I think of prayer or what my concept is of prayer, I chose to just say a few little words just a few little words, but most of it is going to be shared with you from the Bible and the pen of inspiration because I can't improve on the Bible or the pen of inspiration. Did you know, Lord, how can I apply this sermon to myself personally? And how can I do it in such a way that you will somehow get the message of what it means? Lord, teach us to pray. Is that speaker really bothering you? It is. We have to make sure it's toned down just a little bit. So the Lord is going to help us to learn, to teach us how to pray in such a way that today you're going to hear a few things that I will be shocked that I'm reading it to you, but also you will be surprised on what Ellen White was able to share with us what God has shared with her. So Luke 11, 1, again. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So it's kind of interesting on the comparison. So today... The real question is, what is real prayer? So we're going to have to define prayer. What is effective prayer? What is that that you and I are going to 
be more concerned after we hear what we hear from the Bible and spirit prophecy about the adventure in understanding more fully what prayer is and what prayer may not be. So, I'm going to start with Steps to Christ, page 93. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. For 67 years, I've been married to Elaine. We have talked, we've visited, and after 67 years, those of you who just got married, we're still trying to understand each other and talk to each other and become the kind of friends that married people ought to be from the beginning to the very end. And when I think of my best friend, Elaine, and all of you have best friends, and some of us have friends that are not the second best, their best, you know. And how, how do we talk to God as to a friend? Reading further, not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive our best friend, receive him. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to him. And so often, we hear people sometimes praying, and right after that, publicly, they bring God down to our level. No, 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 no. Further, if we keep the Lord ever before us, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him, we shall have a continual freshness in our religious experience. A continuous freshness. Something so new, so different, so Wonderful, that is just unbelievable. Our prayers will take the form of a conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. He will speak his mysteries to us personally. It's a personal experience. Often there will come to us a sweet, joyful sense of the presence of Jesus. Often our hearts will burn within us as he draws nigh to commune with us as he did with Enoch. Therefore, we will go back to Enoch before we're finished. Further, it's rather interesting, it says, when this is, in truth, the experience of the Christian, there is seen in his life a simplicity, a humility, meekness, and lowliness of heart that shows to all with whom he associates that he has been with Jesus and learned of him. So beautiful. So loving, 
And this is found in Christ's object lesson. Let me read in another part of, that's 129 and 130. And here it says in page 94, here's what it says. Listen, listen. It's interesting. The darkness of the evil one encloses those who neglect to pray. Now this is a statement, my friends, not from me. God inspired the pen of inspiration to write down something, and that is, that the darkness of the evil one encloses those who neglect to pray. The whispered temptation of the enemy entices them to sin. How? The Ten Commandments. The First Commandment is what? Thou shalt not have any other gods. And if we pray to the true and living God, and we don't pray to the living God anymore, or periodically, what happens? We're on the devil's ground. The whispered temptation of the enemy entices them to sin, and it is all because they do not make use of the privilege that God has given them in the divine appointment of prayer. Why should the sons and daughters of God be reluctant to pray when prayer is the key in the hand of faith to unlock heaven's storehouse? You've got the key. Further, it says, where are treasures, the boundless resources of omnipotence? And then it says, without <coughs> unceasing prayer and diligent watching, we are in danger of growing careless and of deviating from the right path. That's what it is. Let, let, let me read an, another section in Christ's Object Lesson, page 163. Do not neglect secret prayer, for it is a soul of religion with earnest, fervent prayer, plead for purity of soul. Plead as earnestly, as eagerly as you would for your mortal life. Were it at stake. Now that's serious. To think that if we might lose our life, How would we respond? Remain before God until unutterly longings are begotten within you for salvation and the sweet evidence is obtained of pardoned sin. We must have our sins pardoned. And then gospel workers, this, this is choice describing Prayer is the breath of the soul. If you and I must live, we must breathe. And so it is. Prayer is the breath of the soul. It is the secret of spiritual power. 
have you heard people sometimes look at you and say, what is your secret? What is your secret in whatever? Here, you've got a secret. You've got it. It is the secret of spiritual power. No other means of grace can be substituted and the health of the soul be preserved. Prayer brings the heart into immediate contact with the wellspring of life and strengthens the sinews and the muscle of the religious experience. And then it says, neglect the exercise of prayer or engage in prayer spasmodically now and then as seems convenient and you lose your hold on God. God doesn't force you, but you choose to hold on to God's hand. If you cease praying, that's what you're doing. Well, I think that alone gives us tremendous amount of information. Now we're going to take a moment and take a look at something that may not be prayer. I am so glad that these are not my words because you would point at me and almost say, look, stop. But let's go at it, okay? In Jeremiah 7, 16, there's a verse there, and if you want to read, What's above or below that? Fine, but I'm going to just pinpoint Jeremiah 7, 16. Therefore, pray not thou for this people. Neither lift up cry, not pray for them. Neither make intercessions to me, for I will not hear thee. What's all that? Okay, the question. What is presumptuous or presumption? How may I guard against presumption when I pray? If anything, please listen to the words that I read because... This is found in Desire of Ages, page 126, and it will all at once open for you the difference between prayer that's really connected to God and, well, let's start. Desire of Ages, page 126. Presumption is Satan's counterfeit of faith. Faith claims God's promises and brings forth fruit in obedience. Presumption also claims promises, but uses them as Satan did to excuse transaction, transgression. Are you thinking? 
Is the Holy Spirit touching you in this particular area? Presumption also claims the promises, but uses them as Satan did to excuse transgression. And Satan was made by God in heaven, a perfect place. And you know what happened? Faith would have led our first parents to trust the love of God and to obey his commands. Presumption led them to transgress his law, believing that his great love would save them from the consequences of their sins. Wow. That's the truth. That is what makes us begin to see. And you've heard me say this statement many times. You have the power of choice. But you don't have the power to change the consequences of your choice. And I never, I've said it many times, but I've never seen it the way I see it here. And then further it says, that so-called faith in Christ, which professes to release men from the obligation of obedience to God, is not faith, but presumption. Are you getting it? The so-called faith in Christ, which professes to release men from the obligation of obedience to God, is not faith, but presumption. Steps to Christ, page 61. Further, selected messages, page 173. It is presumption to indulge in suppositions and theories regarding matters that God has not made known to us in his word. We need not enter into speculation regarding our future state. And then it says, presumption is a common temptation and as Satan assails men with this, he obtains the victory nine times out of ten. She put that down in writing, inspired by God to put it down. Nine out of ten. Those who profess to be followers of Christ and claim by their faith to be enlisted in their warfare against all evil in their nature frequently plunge without thought into temptations from which it would require a miracle to bring them forth unsolved. The promise of God are not for us rationally to claim while we rush on recklessly into danger. This is the most best description of presumption. 
Testimonies, Volume 4, page 44. Satan tempted Christ on presumption. Watch this. He then urged Christ to give him one more proof of his entire dependence upon God, one more evidence of his faith that he was the son of God by casting himself from the temple. The redeemer of the world would not, at Satan's suggestion, tempt God by presumptuously experimenting on his providence. He refused to presume upon the mercy of his father by placing himself in peril that would make it necessary for his heavenly father to display his power to save him from danger. What does it mean? What is God's Holy Spirit telling you through this quotation? To claim that prayer will always be answered in the very way for the particular things that we desire is presumption. Steps to Christ, page 96. Lord, teach me how to pray. Of all, I need to learn how to pray. Further, it says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 440, he did not seek to, that's uh, Balaam's, you remember Balaam's presumption? He did not seek to do the will of God, but chose his own course and then endeavored to secure the sanction of the Lord. There are thousands at the present day who are pursuing a similar course. They would have no difficulty in understanding their duty if it were in harmony with their inclination. But because these evidences are contrary to their desires and inclinations, they frequently set aside or set them aside and presume to go to God to learn their duty. Boy, I tell you, Psalms 19:13 is so appropriate where it says, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright. Found in Psalms 19.31. It's in the Bible. Now, in Luke 1.17, look what it says. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. It's interesting that we have children. Children's Day today. 
we were children. And here, this Bible verse says, And he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make needy a people prepared for the Lord. So how does the experience of Enoch and of John the Baptist relate to you and me, God's people, remnant people? How? Well, this is powerful. Very powerful. It says the experience of Enoch and of John the Baptist I'm reading from Testimonies, volume 8, page 321. The experience of Enoch and of John the Baptist represents what ours should be. The experience that you and I should have. Far more than we do, we need to study the lives of these men. He who was translated to heaven without seeing death, and he who before Christ's first advent was called to prepare the way of the Lord to make his paths straight. That covers all of us. Volume 8, page 329. The life of John the Baptist was not spent in idleness, in gloom, or in selfish isolation. From time to time, Watch this. He went forth to mingle with men. Jonathan, mingle with men. That little quote that you have, you'll share with it when you have your meeting. From time to time, he went forth. Who? to mingle with men, and he was ever an interested observer of what was passing in the world at that time. From his quiet retreat, he watched the unfolding of events. The burden of his mission was upon him. In solitude, by, by uh, meditation and prayer, he sought to grid up his soul for the life work before him. Gospel Workers, page 57. John the Baptist, in his desert life, was taught of God. He studied the revelations of God in nature. Under the guiding of the divine spirit, he studied the scrolls of the prophets. That we're doing. Day by day, night by night, Christ was his study, his mediation, until mind and heart and soul were filled with the glorious vision. And then further, if I may just read, he looked upon the king in his beauty and self 
was lost sight of. He beheld the mystery of holiness and knew himself to be insufficient and unworthy. It was God's message that he was to declare. It was in God's power and his righteousness that he was to stand. He was ready to go forth as heaven's messenger, unawed by the human, because he had looked upon the divine. He could stand fearlessly <coughs> in the presence of earthly monarchs, because with trembling he had bowed before the king of kings. With no elaborate argument or fine-spun theories did John declare his message. He was forceful. And then, looking in faith to the Redeemer, John had risen to the height of self-abnegation. He sought not to attract men to himself, but to lift their thoughts higher and still higher until they should rest upon the Lamb of God. He himself had been only a voice crying in the wilderness. What a servant of God. And then further it says, the soul of the prophet emptied of self was filled with the light of the divine. In this age, just prior to the second coming of Christ, in the clouds of heaven, such a work as that of John is to be done. In order to give such a message as John gave, we must have a spiritual experience like his. The same work must be wrought in us. We must behold God and in beholding him, lose sight of self. John had by nature the faults and weaknesses common to you and me, to humanity. But the touch of the divine love had transformed him. O oh Lord, may we, like John the Baptist, be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we too may fulfill our divinely appointed mission. I think, teach us to pray. What we're going to do right now is have all of us Stand in dedication to God and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And we will form one big circle in this church and have prayer. Big circle, all of us. I think you can stretch, stretch, stretch and go around. And what we're going to do is ask our assistant 
elder, then would you please pray? Mary Angela, pray. And also Dan. And then I will.